Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Over the past couple of episodes, we witnessed Fune grow from a child to a teenager and now into a man. We learn more about the history of Ireland and that the actions that take place during this episode and these chapters occur during Samhain, or as many people nowadays refer to as Halloween. Right now, I'm relaxing with a drink that is dead simple. Milk, hot water, and honey. Anyone else enjoy that? Some days, mates, you just want to chill. Take it easy and drink something that reminds you of when you were a kid yourself. Milk, hot water, and honey is my way of relaxing and reminiscing. So grab your own drink of honeyed milk, turn off the lights and turn up the sound, and listen to the final chapters of The Boyhood of Hugh. Chapter 11 He had received all that he could get from Finnegus. His education was finished, and the time had come to test it, and to try all else that he had of mind and body. He bade farewell to the gentle poet, and set out for Tara of the Kings. It was Samhain tide, and the feast of Tara was being held, at which all that was wise or skillful or well-born in Ireland were gathered together. This is how Tara was when Tara was. There was the High King's Palace with its fortification. Without it was another fortification, enclosing the four minor palaces, each of which was maintained by one of the four provincial kings. Without that again was the Great Banqueting Hall, and around it, enclosing all of the sacred hill, in its gigantic bounds, around the main outer ramparts of Tara. From it, the centre of Ireland, four great roads went north, south, east and west, and along these roads, from the top and the bottom, and the two sides of Ireland, there moved for weeks before Samhain and endless stream of passengers. Here a gay band went carrying rich treasure to decorate the pavilion of a monster lord, on another road, a vat of seasoned yew, and monstrous as a house on wheels, and drawn by a hundred laborous oxen, came bumping and juggling the ale that thirsty Connaught princes would drink. On a road again, the learned men of Leinster, each with an idea in his head that would discomfort a northern Olaf and make a southern one gape and fidget, would be marching solemnly, each by a horse that was piled high on the back and widely at the sides, with clean peeled willow or oaken wands, that were carved from the top to the bottom with the Ogham signs, which were the first lines of poems, for it was an offence against wisdom to commit more than initial lines to writing. The names and dates of kings, the procession of laws of Tara, and of the sub-kingdoms, the names of places and their meanings. On the brown stallion ambling peacefully yonder, there might go the warning of the gods. For two or ten thousand years, this mare with the dainty pace and the vicious eye might be sidling under a load of oaken oats in honour of her owner's family, with a few bundles of tales of wonder added in case they might be useful. And perhaps, the rested piebald was backing the history of Ireland into a ditch. The term piebald refers to a pied animal, one that has a pattern of pigmented spots, or an unpigmented white background of hair, feathers, or scales. On such a journey, all people spoke together, 
for all were friends, and no person regarded the weapon in another man's hand, other than as an implement to poke a reluctant cow with, or to pacify with a loud wallop some hoof-proud cult. Into this team, a profusion of jolly humanity, Fune slipped, and if his mood had been as bellicose as a wounded boar, he would yet have found no man to quarrel with, and if his eye had been as sharp as the jealous husband's, he would have found no eye to meet it with calculation or menace or fear, for the peace of Ireland was in being, and for six weeks man was neighbour to man, and the nation was the guest of the High King. Fune went in with the notables. His arrival had been timed for the opening day, and the great feast of welcome. He may have marvelled, looking on the bright city, with its pillars of gleaming bronze, and the roofs that were painted in many colours, so that each house seemed to be covered by the spreading wings of some gigantic and gorgeous bird, and the palace themselves mellow with red oak, polished within and without by the wear and the care of a thousand years, and carved with the patient skill of unending generations of the most famous artists of the most artistic country of the Western world, would have given him much to marvel at also. It must have seemed like a city of dream, a city to catch the heart, when, coming over the great plain, Fune saw Tara of the Kings, held on its hill as in a hand to gather all the gold of the falling sun, and to restore a brightness as mellow and tender as that universal largesse. In the great banqueting hall, everything was in order for the feast. The nobles of Ireland, with their winsome consorts, the learned and artistic professions represented by the pick of their time were in place. The Ard Recorm of the Hundred Battles had taken his place on the raised dais, which commanded the whole of that vast hall. At his right hand, his son, Art, to be afterwards as famous as his famous father, took his seat, and on his left, Gol Mormacmorna, chief of the Funa of Ireland, had the seat of honour. As the High King took his place, he could see every person who was noted in the land for any reason. He would have known everyone who was present, for the fame of all men is sealed at Tara, and behind his chair a herald stood to tell anything the king might not know or had forgotten. Con gave the signal, and his guests seated themselves. The time had come for the squires to take their stations behind their masters and mistresses. But, for the moment, the great room was seated, and the doors were held to allow a moment of respect to pass before the servers and squires came in. Looking over his guests, Con observed that a young man was yet standing. There is a gentleman, he murmured, for whom no seat has been found. We may be sure that the master of the banquet blushed at that. And, the king continued, I do not seem to know the young man. Nor did his herald, nor did the unfortunate master, nor did anybody, for the eyes of all were now turned where the king's went. Give me my horn, said the gracious monarch. The horn of state was put to his hand. Young, Young gentleman, gentleman, he called to the stranger. I, I wish, wish to drink to your health and welcome you to Tara. The young man came forward then, greater shouldered than any mighty man of that gathering, longer and cleaner limbed, with his fair curls dancing about his beardless face. The king put the great horn into his hand, Tell me your name, he commanded gently. I am Fune, the son of Uel, 
the son of Baishni, said the youth. And at that saying, a touch as of lightning went through the gathering, so that each person quivered, and the son of the great murdered captain looked by the king's shoulder into the twinkling eye of Gaul. But no word was uttered, no movement made, except the movement and the utterance of the Ard Ri. You are the son of a friend, said the great-hearted monarch. You shall have the seat of a friend, and placed Fion at the right hand of his own son, Art. Chapter 12 It is to be known that on the night of the Feast of Samhain, the doors separating this world and the next one are opened, and the inhabitants of either world can leave their respective spheres and appear in the world of the other beings. Now, there was a grandson to the Dagdamor, the lord of the underworld, and he was named Aelin Macmidna, out of the Shi, Finachi. And this Aelin bore an impeccable enmity to Tara and the Ardari. As well as being monarch of Ireland, her high king was chief of the people learned in magic, and it is possible that at some time Con had adventured into Tirnanog, the land of the young and had done some deed or misdeed in Aileen's lordship or in his family. It must have been an ill deed in truth, for it was in a very rage of revenge that Aileen came yearly at the permitted time to ravage Tara. Nine times he had come on this mission of revenge, but it is not to be supposed that he could actually destroy the holy city. The Ardri and magicians could prevent that, but he could yet do a damage so considerable that it was worth Con's while to take special extra precautions against him, including the precaution of chance. Therefore, when the feast was over and the banquet had commenced, the hundred fighter stood from his throne and looked over his assembled people. The chain of silence was shaken by the attendant whose duty and honour was the silver chain, and at that delicate chime the halt went silent, and a general wonder ensued as to what matter the high king would submit to his people. Friends and heroes, said Con. Aelin, the son of Midna, will come tonight from Slievi, Fuaid, with occult, terrible fire against our city. Is there among you one who loves Tara and the king, who will undertake our defense against that being? He spoke in silence, and when he had finished, he listened to the same silence. But it was now deep, ominous agonized. Each man glanced uneasily on his neighbor, and then stared at his wine cup, or his fingers. The hearts of young men went hot for a gallant moment, and were chilled in the succeeding one. For they all heard of Aelin out of Shur, Finacci of the North. The lesser gentlemen looked under their brows at the greater champions, as these peered furtively at the greatest of all. Art Og MacMorna, of the hard strokes fell to biting his fingers. Conan, the swearer, and Gara MacMorna grumbled irritably to each other, and at their neighbors. Even Kelty, the son of Ronan, looked down into his own lap, and Golmore sipped at his wine without any twinkle in his eye. A horrid embarrassment came into the great hall, and as the High King stood in that palpitating silence, his noble face changed from kindly to grave, and from that to terrible sternness. In another moment, to the undying shame of every person present, 
he would have been compelled to lift his own challenge and declare himself the champion of Tara for that night. But the shame that was on the faces of his people would remain in the heart of their king. Gull's merry mind would help him to forget, but even his heart would be wrung by a memory that he would not dare to face. It was at that terrible moment that Fune stood up. What? said he. Will be given to the man who undertakes this defense. All that can be rightly asked will be royally bestowed, was the king's answer. Who are the sureties? said Fune. The King of Ireland and Red Sith with his magicians. I will undertake the defense, said Fune. And on that, the king and magicians who were present bound themselves to the fulfillment of the bargain. Fune marched from the banqueting hall, and as he went, all who were present of nobles and retainers and servants acclaimed him and wished him luck. But in their hearts, they were bidding him goodbye, for all were assured that the lad was marching to a death so unescapable as he might already be counted as a dead man. It is likely that Fune looked for help to the people of the Shi themselves, for, through his mother, he belonged to the tribe of Dana, although on the father's side his blood was well compounded with mortal clay. It may be, too, that he knew how events would turn, for he had eaten the salmon of knowledge. Yet it is not recorded that on this occasion he invoked any magical art, as he did on other adventures. Fune's way of discovering whatever was happening and hidden was always the same, and is many times referred to. A shallow, oblong dish of pure, pale gold was brought to him. This dish was filled with clear water. Then Fune would bend his head and stare into the water, and as he stared, he would place his thumb in his mouth under his tooth of knowledge his wisdom tooth. Knowledge, may it be said, is higher than magic and is more to be sought. It is quite possible to see what is happening and yet not know what is forward. For while seeing is believing, it does not follow that either seeing or believing is knowing. Many a person can see a thing and believe a thing and know just a little bit about it, as the person who does neither. But Fune would see and know and he would understand a decent ratio of his visions. That he was versed in magic is true, for he was ever known as the knowledgeable man, and later he had two magicians in his household named Dirham and McGreeth to do the rough work of knowledge for their busy master. It was not from the she, however, that assistance came to Fume. Chapter 13 He marched through the successive fortifications until he came to the outer great wall, the boundary of the city, and when he had passed this, he was on the wide plain of Tara. Other than himself, no person was abroad, for on the night of the Feast of Samhain, none but a madman would quit the shelter of a house, even if it were on fire. For whatever disasters might be within a house would be as nothing to the calamities without it. The noise of the banquet was now audible to Fune. It is possible, however, that there was the shame-faced silence in the Great Hall and the light of the city were hidden by the successive great ramparts. The sky was over him, the earth under him, and than these there was nothing, or there was but the darkness and the wind. But darkness was not a thing to terrify him. Bred in the nightness of a wood, and the very fostering of gloom, 
nor could the wind afflict his ear or his heart. There was no note in his orchestra that he had not brooded on and become, which becoming is magic. The long-drawn moan of it, the thrilling whisper and hush, the shrill, sweet whistle, so thin in it can scarcely be heard, and is taken more by the nerves than by the ear. The screech, sudden as a devil's yell and loud as ten thunders, the cry as of one who flies with backward look to the shelter of leaves and darkness, and the sob as of one stricken with an age-long misery, only at times remembered, but remembered then with what a pang. His ear knew by what successions they arrived, and by what stages they grew and diminished, listening in the dark to the bundle of noises, which make a noise he could distangle them, and assign a place and a reason to each, with the gradation of sound that formed the chorus. There was a patter of a rabbit, and there was the scurrying of a hare, a bush rustled yonder, and that brief rustle was a bird, that pressure was a wolf, and this hesitation a fox. The scraping yonder was but a rough leaf against bark, and the scratching beyond it was a ferret's claw. Fear cannot be where knowledge is, and Fune was not fearful. His mind, quietly busy on all sides, picked up one sound and dwelt on it. A man, said Fune, and he listened in that direction, back towards the city. A man it was, almost as skilled in darkness as Fune himself. This is no enemy, Fune thought. His walking is open. Who comes? He called. A friend, said the newcomer. Give a friend's name, said Fune. Fiacul Makona, was the answer. Ah, my pulse and heart, cried Fune, and he strode a few paces to meet the great robber who had fostered him among the marshes. So you are not afraid, he said joyfully. I am afraid in good truth, Fiacril whispered, and the minute my business with you is finished, I will trot back as quick as legs will carry me. May the gods protect my going, as they protected my coming, said the robber piously. Amen, said Fune. And now, tell me what you have come for. Have you any plan against the Lord of Shul? Fiacril whispered. I will attack him, said Fune. That is not a plan. The other groaned. We do not plan to deliver an attack, but to win a victory. Is this a very terrible person? Fune asked. No one can get near him or away from him. He comes out of the sheer, playing sweet, low music on a timpan and pipe. And all who hear this music fall asleep. I will not fall asleep, said Fune. You will indeed, for everybody does. What happens then? Fune asks. When all are asleep, Aelin Magmidna blows a dart of fire out of his mouth, and everything that is touched by that fire is destroyed. And he can blow his fire to an incredible distance, and to any direction. You are very brave to come to help me, Fune murmured, especially when you are not able to help me at all. I can help, Fiacquil replied. But I must be paid. What payment? A third of all you earn, and a seat at your council. I grant that, said Fune. And now, tell me your plan. You remember my spear, with the thirty rivets of Arabian gold in its socket? The one, Fune queried, 
that had its head wrapped in a blanket and was stuck in a bucket of water and chained to a wall as well? The venomous Baga. That one, Fiaquil replied. It is Aelin MacMidna's own spear, he continued, and it was taken out of the she by your father. Well, said Fune, wondering nevertheless where Fiaquil got the spear, but too generous to ask. When you hear the great man of Sheik coming, take the wrappings off the head of the spear and bend your face over it. The heat of the spear, the stench of it, all its pernicious and acrid qualities will prevent you from going to sleep. Are you sure of that? said Fune. You couldn't go to sleep close to that stench. Nobody could. Aelin MacMidna will be off his guard when he stops playing and begins to blow his fire. He will think everybody is asleep. Then you can deliver the attack you are speaking of, and all good luck go with it. I will give him back his spear, said Fune. Here it is, said Fiaquil, taking the burgha from under his cloak. But be as careful of it, my pulse be as frightened of it, as you are of the man of Dana. I will be frightened of nothing said Fune, and the only person I will be sorry for is that Aelin MacMidna, who is going to get his own spear back. I will go away now, his companion whispered, for it is growing darker when you would have thought there was no more room for darkness, and there is an eerie feeling abroad which I do not like. That man from the Shi may come any minute, and if I catch one sound of his music, I'm done for. The robber went away, and again Fune was alone. Chapter 14 He listened to the retreating footsteps until they could be heard no more, and the one sound that came to his tense ears was the beating of his own heart. Even the wind had ceased, and there seemed to be nothing in the world but the darkness and himself. In that gigantic blackness, in that unseen quietude and vacancy, the mind could cease to be personal to itself. It could be overwhelmed and merged in space, so that consciousness would be transferred or dissipated, and one might sleep standing, for the mind fears loneliness more than anything else, and will escape to the moon rather than be driven inwards on its own being. But Fune was not lonely, and he was not afraid when the sun of Midna came. A long stretch of silent night had gone by, minute by minute, in a slow sequence. Wherein, as there was no change, there was no time. Wherein there was no past and no future, but a stupefying, endless present, which is almost the annihilation of consciousness. A change came then, for the clouds had also been moving, and the moon at last was sensed behind them. But as a precolation of light, a gleam that was strained through matter after matter, and was less than the very wraith or remembrance of itself, a thing seen so narrowly, so sparsely, that the eye could doubt if it was or was not seen, and might convince that its own memory was recreating that which was still absent. But Fune's eye was the eye of a wild creature that spies on darkness and moves there wittingly. He saw then not a thing, but a movement, something that was darker than the darkness it loomed on, not a being but a presence and, as it were, impending pressure, and in a little he heard the deliberate pace of that great being. 
Fion bent to his spear and loosened its covers. Then, from the darkness there came another sound. A low, sweet sound, thrillingly joyous, thrillingly low. So low, the ear could scarcely note it. So sweet, the air wished to catch nothing else, and would strive to hear it rather than all sounds that may be heard by man. The music of another world, the unearthly, dear melody of the she. So sweet it was that the sense strained to it, and having reached must follow drowsily in its wake, and would merge in it, and could not return again to its own place, until that strange harmony was finished, and the ear restored to freedom. But Fiun had taken the covering from his spear, and with his brow pressed close to it, he kept his mind and all his senses engaged on that sizzling, murderous point. The music ceased, and Aelin hissed a fierce blue flame from his mouth, and it was as though he hissed lightning. Here it was seen that Fune used magic for spreading out his fringed mantle. He caught the flame. Rather, he stopped it. For it slid from the mantle and sped down into the earth, to the depth of 26 spans, from which that slope is still called the Glen of the Mantle, and the rise of which Aelin stood is known as the Ard of Fire. One can imagine the surprise of Aileen MacMidna seeing his fire caught and quenched by an invisible hand. And one can imagine that at this check he might be frightened, for who would be more terrified than a magician who sees his magic fail, and who, knowing of power, will guess at powers of which he has no conception, and may well dread. Everything had been done by him as it should have been done. His pipe and timpan had been played. All who heard that music should be asleep, and yet his fire was caught in full course and was quenched. Aelin, with all the terrific strength of which he was master, blew again. And the great jet of blue flame came roaring and whistling from him, and was caught and disappeared. Panic swirled into the man from Fairy. He turned from the terrible spot and fled, not knowing what might be behind but dreading it, as he had never before dreaded anything, and the unknown pursued him, that terrible defense became offense, and hung to its heel as a wolf pads by the flank of a bull. And Aelin was not in his own world, he was in the world of men, where movement is not easy, and the very air is a burden. In his own sphere, in his own element, he might have outrun Fune, but this was Fune's world, Fume's element, and the flying god was not gross enough to outstrip him. Yet what a race he gave, for it was but at the entrance to his own she that the pursuer got close enough. Fune put a finger into the thong of the great spear, and at that cast, night fell on Aileen MacMidna. His eyes went black, his mind whirled and ceased. There came nothingness where he had been. And as the burger whistled into his shoulder blades, he withered away. He tumbled emptily and was dead. Fune took his lovely head from his shoulders and went back through the night to Tara. Triumphant Fune, who had dealt death to a god, and to whom death would be dealt, and who is now dead. He reached the palace at sunrise. On that morning all were astir early, they wished to see what destruction had been wrought by the great being, but it was young Fune they saw, and that redoubtable head swinging by its hair. 
What is your demand? Said the Ard Ri. The thing that is right I should ask, said Fune. The command of the Funa of Ireland. Make your choice, said Con de Golmour. You will leave Ireland, or you will place your hand in the hand of this champion and be his man. Gaul could do a thing that would be hard for another person, and he could do it so beautifully that he was not diminished by any action. Here is my hand. And he twinkled at the stern, young eyes that gazed on him as he made his submission. And thus concludes the boyhood of Fune. Just marvellous. We really got to walk amongst the world in today's Irish folktale episodes. A lot of details about the location of Fune, a lot of details about the location of where Fune lived and grew up, and the use of descriptive language really paints a picture of what it was like back then. The kinds of people he lived with, the types of people that lived in that era. You learn a lot about the culture at the time from stories like this. They are a wealth of knowledge and act like a time capsule, when upon reading you learn so much about the ongoing expectations, cultural traditions, and what mattered most to a person during those times, and the kinds of personalities that inhabited the minds of storytellers of those times. The characters in these stories also were limited to very few words, and our villain actually had no lines whatsoever, and their last action being a full retreat. You can really see how different modern day literature is when compared to old folk tales in the 1800s, which of course is of no big surprise, but it's just interesting to note those differences. So I've read 14 chapters of Irish folklore and then some. I'm going to shake it up a bit with either some no sleeps, true stories, or paranormal stories. If you have a favorite and you want to hear it, let me know. You can email me stories, fables, ghostly tales at gmail.com, Facebook message me, or even leave an iTunes review with what you'd like in the review. I'll note it and include you in the shout out alongside your recommended story. Now have a bubbly Monday morning or a devilishly creepy night. And as always, listeners, till next time.